All right, turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter number one. Malachi chapter number one. Wasn't that good, church? Man, I, uh, I hope we never, ever grow tired of what we get to experience here in person as a church. And so thankful for Pastor Tyler and how he leads our services that way. I'm sure you all know, but he's really good at what he does, huh? Man, I'm blessed. Malachi chapter number one, I want us to, we'll read the passage and then we'll, I'll, I'll say a few comments and we'll get into the message tonight. Malachi chapter one, we'll be in verse number one, and here's what it says in verse number one, Malachi chapter one. It says this, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Here's what Malachi says in verse two, I have loved you, saith the Lord. And then he supposes what Israel, how Israel would respond. He says, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? And then the Lord replies, was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I love Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Verse 4, whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places... Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them, it's talking about the people surrounding the nation of Edom, they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And then he directs it back to Israel. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord be magnified from the border of Israel. Now, this may surprise you. Some of you won't surprise you at all. Uh, but I come from a long family lineage of lawyers. Now, some of you know why you don't like me now, because I come from a family of lawyers. In fact, the Collins family has as many lawyers as the Prater family has preachers. And you can imagine what it's like growing up in a house full of lawyers. My dad's a lawyer. My uncle Jim is a lawyer. And then my grandfather, who passed away when I was very young, uh, he was a lawyer and then eventually got promoted to a judge. Which I don't know, I don't understand why judges are so revered but lawyers are hated. Because <laughs> judges are just lawyers with a promotion. <laughs> but growing up in my household, my dad would always, if we were in trouble, you can imagine, he uh, treated each brother as a witness on the stand. In fact, I remember one time my brother snuck out while my parents were away, and I was trying to be a good little brother and provide cover, but dad, the lawyer, got the best of me, and he started talking about law school and how they grill the witness, and it wasn't long before I snapped, and I confessed and told everything. Now, you might think that being in a courtroom and being a lawyer, it's just two professional people arguing. And it may be a lot of that, but actually there's a lot of structure and a lot of rules to a courtroom setting. Um, that's why you hear in the TV shows, objection. That's because someone is breaking the rule, breaking the set of order that's been laid out for how a trial should proceed. Now this is oversimplified, but I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is kind of the order of events in a courtroom trial. And I'm sure some of the law enforcement brethren might tell me I'm wrong, but this is very oversimplified, okay? Here's number one. Each side ha gives their opening statements. 
the prosecution, defense, they give their opening statements. And then there's a, a, really the longest part of the trial is the presentation of evidence. And then as the prosecution maybe would call a witness to the stand, the defense would have their opportunity to then cross-examine that witness or that person who's testifying. And then each side gives their closing arguments. And then obviously it ends with the jury's deliberation and verdict. Now the reason I share that is not to flex that I'm from a lawyer family. The reason I share that is because actually the book of Malachi, it'll make a lot more sense to you when you read it, to understand that actually the book of Malachi is a series of legal disputes. Literally, it's like God is imagining he's in a courtroom setting with his people because as many of you know, God has a covenant, or we could even use the Americanized version, a contract with his people. And as many of you know, you get through the Old Testament, God has more than upheld his side of the covenant and the contract, but it doesn't take a whole lot of research in the Old Testament to find out that his people have done their job of ruining it. God loved them, God blessed them, God promised them so much, and all he asked is that out of love they would serve him in return. But you look in the book of Malachi, and, and you see very quickly that God's not happy. And he roasts them for their um, easygoing worship, and he talks to them about their casual attitude towards giving, and he talks to them about their casual attitude towards idolatry and marriage. And so the entirety of the book of Malachi is really just six different legal disputes that God lays out. But shockingly, when the court of Malachi chapter number one is called to order, God doesn't put Israel on the witness stand. Actually, when God opens up the book of Malachi, it's not Israel on the defense. Instead, he chooses to put himself on the witness stand and to put his love for the nation of Israel under examination because here's the truth, church, that before God could get to their conduct and to their worship, God had to reaffirm to them and reassure them that he loved them because it was out of a love for him that they should worship him. Are you following me? And so he's going to open up, look at verse number two. He opens up with his opening statement, if you will. He says, I have loved you. But Israel's response is what? In verse number two. Wherein hast thou loved us? Wherein hast thou loved us? Can you imagine that? That, that God's people would get to such a place that their heart's attitude, if they were to stand face to face with God, that they would look at him in the eye and say, prove to me that you love me. You tell me you love me. Wherein hast thou loved us? And then what God is going to do in the rest of the verses we'll get to in a second is that he's going to prove that. But I want you to think about this. The nation of Israel was so arrogant to say that, but I want you to look back on their history and realize that these were the same people that God led out of Egypt. These are the same people that were enslaved for generations, and yet God miraculously raised up poor, slave-bound people and rescued them from the most powerful world empire. These were the same people that God had rescued no more than just a few decades maybe before this book was written out of Babylonian captivity. Another world power, 
and another miraculous deliverance by God. These were the same people. Depending on how you view the book of Malachi being written, it's, many scholars say it was written actually around the time of the book of Nehemiah that pastor's been preaching through. And so no doubt there's a possibility these people had just seen God miraculously rally their people around to build up the wall of Jerusalem in 52 days, and now they're looking God in the face and they're saying, you prove to us that you love us. And I would say that the reason Israel doubted God's love is actually very similar to the reason that you and I have a tendency to doubt God's love. Because it doesn't matter what your resume of blessings is. Would you agree with this church? When your current circumstances seem to contradict the message that God loves you, we all have a tendency, don't we, to look up into the sky and wonder, God, are you sure you love me? Is your love really measureless and strong? There's a lot of backstory to verse number two. I want to just go into a little bit the circumstances that Israel was facing that will make some application because really when you see that phrase in verse number two that wherein hast thou loved us, here's what we have to understand that while we could go back and look at the history that Israel had, we really have to get our minds into the biblical text and understand that their current situation was far from ideal. Okay, we talk a lot about the hoopla and and the celebration of building the wall, but here's the reality, church. Their nation was pitiful, and their nation was very weak. For generations, Israel had understood, and they would be rehearsed, these Bible verses from like Genesis 17, how God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 17 that he would give them a land, and he would give them a bunch of posterity, a lot of in, uh, inhabitants to dwell their nation that God would make of them a powerful nation but when we read the book of Malachi you have to understand this that they were not a powerful nation they were the type of people that they couldn't even build a wall without having a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other you know what that means they had constant threats against their nation I don't know about you but having my security constant in danger doesn't make me feel like I'm a powerful nation These are the same people that if you read later in the book of Malachi, their crops were devastated. And we find out it's because they weren't giving to God. And so God had a way of getting his from them. But their crops were devastated. And so I just imagine that maybe a Jewish farmer would walk out after another bad harvest. He'd look at his crops and say, is this what God's blessings look like? Is this what God's love looks like? I imagine an Israelite banker as interest rates plummeted through the ground as he had no business and no loans to give out would look at his books and would realize that he had only a few months left before he was completely broke. Maybe sitting at his desk late at night would wonder, is this really what God's love looks like? As many of the people there who understood that God would promise them posterity and give them a lot of children and grandchildren were barren and couldn't produce a man-child and couldn't have children would wonder and maybe look up at night and say, God, is this really what your love looks like? I don't know about you, church, but I wonder if some of us can identify with that. 
Yeah, we know we're God's children, and yes, we could quote the Bible verses, and we know he's a good, good father. It's who he is. But I wonder if sometimes our circumstances cause us to doubt if God truly loves us and has a purpose for our life. Well, we know for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and that God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, but yet we face tragedies. And I wonder if there have been some of the fellowship family who've encountered tragedies and have laid in bed at night and wondered, is this really what God's love and purpose looks like? I mean, I wouldn't wish this upon my worst enemy. And here I am, God's child, facing this. I wonder if some people struggle with God's love because it feels like that you've just come into life at some sort of disadvantage, right? God gave them all of the money. God gave them all the good looks. God gave them all the opportunities. And it seems like your life story is just a story of you getting passed by and disadvantaged and having no shot at the things other people have a shot at. I wonder if maybe there's some that wonder if God has a love for you because the only concept of love that you've seen in your life is people who abused you and people who have betrayed you. And when you hear about a loving father in heaven, you think, that's what love is. If the same people who told me who, that they loved me, but yet they betrayed me, what does God's love really look like? You want to believe it's that God has a purpose for your life, and then one day you stop and you look at the last five years and you feel like, man, I've just been in kind of this holding pattern for years. I'm doing the same thing, same place, same job, same struggles. My marriage isn't any better than it was five years ago. I'm not happier than I was five years ago. I'm just in the same spot. Maybe you feel like God doesn't have a purpose for you because the purpose that you crave is the purpose that God has withheld. You want to be a spouse. You want to be a parent. You want to lead people. And yet those are the very thing, same things that you haven't had an opportunity to do. Am I speaking to the truth tonight? And I know we have some wonderful Christian people here who've endured trials with such faith and grace. But, but I, I know this, that there is such a tendency when our circumstances seem to contradict God's love and purpose for us, we might look up and say, God, is this really your love? Is this really your purpose? So why does God open the book with these two statements? Here's the truth. Because you and I have to come to terms that God loves you and that God has a purpose for you. Because if you don't believe those things, here's, here's what we'll find out in the rest of the book. Your worship will be affected. You could go to any Christian and you could say, wow, if they aren't giving or they aren't serving or they aren't trusting God or they aren't dwelling with him and they aren't rooted in his word, those aren't problems of action. Those are problems of a heart that doesn't love God and doesn't trust God. And so here's what God is going to do in the rest of Malachi verses 1 through 5 is God is going to give Israel and God is also going to give you and me two pieces 
of irrefutable evidence, while his love is on trial, and while his love is on display, he's going to give us two pieces of irrefutable evidence that if you would place your faith and trust in these two pieces of evidence, it wouldn't matter what your circumstances said, you could trust and you could know that God loves you and he has a purpose for your life. And here's the first piece of evidence. It's in verse number two through four. Here's the first irrefutable evidence of God's love for you. It's this. God saved you from the destruction you deserved. God saved you from the destruction you deserved. I love these verses. They seem really weird at first, but I promise you there's something good here. Look at verse number two. He says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I love Jacob. Do you see the contrast? Now look at verse three. And I hated Esau and laid, what's the next word, church? His. Okay, maybe we should look at our Bibles. <laughs> Verse number three. And I hated Esau and laid, what's the next word, church? His mountains. And what's the next word? His heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Do you see the contrast there? Here's what God is doing. He's saying, he's going back to their history as a nation. He's saying, when the nation of Israel was founded, there were two brothers, Jacob who later was named Israel, and Esau. And here's what God is saying. Esau, according to their culture, deserved the birthright. If, if God had followed cultural customs, the blessed nation that we read about in the Old Testament would not have been Israel, it would have been Edom. It would have been Esau's descendants. That's how it went. If you were the firstborn child, you had the birthright, you had the blessing, you got all the benefits. But that's not how God did it, did he? Instead, God blessed Jacob. He blessed Jacob. But here's the truth. Jacob didn't deserve it. Come on. You've heard Pastor and Pastor Tyler preach on the life of Jacob. The guy was a scoundrel. He was a terrible guy. He wasn't an example of faith for much of his life. And yet God decided unconditionally to bless this guy. This lying, cheating, manipulating kid. God blessed him. And then here's what God says. You fast forward several generations and look at the, the difference in destinies that these two nations have. He says that I hated Esau and I laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. And the word dragon is really referring to like a hyena or a jackal. And here's what he's saying. Esau or Edom's nation was so desolate that the only people who lived there were a bunch of hyenas. He says, I wiped them out. And then look at verse number four. They may try to rebuild their nation, God is saying, but as best as they may try, I will thwart their efforts and they will never be the strong nation that I promised that you'll be. Look at verse four. He says, whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. But here's what God says. They shall build, but I will throw down. God says this. Here's the nation of Esau. And you think you've got it bad? You think your life is messed up? You watch and you see how not only have I laid Esau's nation desolate, but they will never recover from it. They will face a destruction that you will never know. And the reason that they face that destruction is not because you're better than them. It's not because you're a better guy or you're a better nation. The only reason that you are spared from that destruction is because I unconditionally saved you because I loved you. Now, if you don't know where this is going, I don't think you're listening very well. Because here's the truth, Christian. You may not have a drop of Jewish blood in your body, but there is a destruction that all of us deserved. 
and it's called hell. And because we were all sinners, we fell short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter how bad your circumstances are. In this day and time, there would be a destruction if it were not for Jesus Christ that you would be on your way to. You would spend eternity in a place absent of God, absent of love, and full of pain and torment if it wasn't for God unconditionally saving you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not what? Perish. Destruction you deserved. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. It was unconditional. And here's the truth, Christian. I I understand. I'm a young man. I've encountered nearly the level of tragedy and pain that many in this auditorium have encountered. I, I understand that. But it doesn't matter what you face. Listen, the pain you're facing right now pales in comparison to the destruction that you and I deserved. And if you, all you had to do, you didn't have to slave away and earn God's love. You didn't have to be a perfect person. But if all you ever did was place your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross and his power to save you, he would unconditionally save you from the destruction you deserved. And it doesn't matter what you're facing. You have no right to claim that God doesn't love you if you have an eternity in heaven when you could have an eternity in a destruction that you deserved. Does God love me? Well, your circumstances may seem like God doesn't love you. But if God saved you, he loves you. What's the second piece of evidence? I like this one. God's eternal purpose for you will prevail. God's eternal purpose for you will prevail. Now this one was a little more difficult because you look at verse 5 and you're like, what? What is this saying? Here's what he says in verse 5. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Pay attention to this because I'm going to say it maybe twice. That here's what that verse means. That Israel would one day, one day in the future, would see God's judgment upon the nations around them. And they would then praise him for his purpose being fulfilled in their nation. I'm going to say that one more time. What verse 5 is saying is that there would come a day that Israel would recognize that God's purpose for their nation had been fulfilled because they would look around them and God would wipe out all of the nations around them and it would be from their nation that God would be magnified forevermore. Because God had promised that it was through their nation that he would be magnified and yet they look at their current situation and say, you aren't being magnified in our nation. You got people like Sanballat and Tobiah that we hear about in Nehemiah who are mocking our God. You hear our enemies, and they don't sing the praises of our God. They mock his name, and so they would look at their current situation and say, God's name won't be magnified in our nation. But here's what Malachi is writing them and reminding them. I like the tense. I want you to look at verse 5. He says, your eyes shall see, and you will say. See, sometimes we don't feel like God's purpose is being fulfilled in our lives because our current circumstances don't seem to indicate that. But what God is saying to them, he's saying, I'll bet you that there will come a day when your doubts will be silenced. And no longer will your your lips 
utter complaint and doubts about my love and purpose for you. No, your doubts will be silenced and the only thing that will ring from your mouths will be praises to me because I will be magnified in your nation. Here's what he's saying. My purpose for you will prevail. This covenant God made with Israel, it's not the same as what you and I can claim promise to. Um, Sorry, but God hasn't promised for eternity that America will be a great nation. It is a good nation, but God hasn't said anything in his word about America being forevermore a great nation. But God does have an eternal purpose for your life, my friend. And there are some purposes that we can cling to in God's word that though we may not understand it right now, we can trust that there will come a time in eternity when God's purpose for us will prevail. And I I just want to give you two of those tonight. Is that okay? Okay. Brother Tyler's okay with it, so we're going to move on. Here's the first one. God has an eternal purpose for your sanctification. Pastor Tyler talked about that on Sunday night, I believe, that that God is always at work in your life to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. I remember uh, Brother Tanner preaching on James chapter 1, which says this, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Therefore, let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. Romans 8, which Pastor Tyler preached a few weeks ago, says this, uh, that God is working all things together for our good to them who love him who are called according to his purpose. And he goes on later in Romans 8 to say that that purpose that he's working towards is the purpose of your sanctification. Now here's the problem. We don't always know how he's sanctifying us. Right? We don't always have the luxury of knowing how God is going to sanctify us when we're in the midst of troublesome times and tragedy. I I don't know about you, but I don't always have a clue on that. I look at my life and I, well, you're supposed to be doing something in here, but I can't quite figure it out. But here's the reality, church. You may not know right now what God is doing in your life, but there will come a day. Can I say it this way? That your eyes shall see. And that you will say, That God worked all things together for good to me. That you will look back on the tragedies, the disappointments, the pain that you faced in your life. That you didn't understand what God was doing. And there will come a day, church, I can promise you this. That you will look back and you'll say, God was at work and his purpose would prevail in my life no matter what happened to me. God was always at work. Here's the other purpose. I like this one. God has an eternal purpose to totally destroy sin and evil. You know, sometimes it's hard to believe that God has a purpose because we look around us and what do we see? We see sin. We see chaos. We see pain. We see injustice. We see hot topic racism. We see lies. We see people persecuting God's people, and we look around us, and just like much of God's people throughout the Bible, we say, God, where's your purpose in all of this? I mean, you've probably met one or two people who said, you're telling me you believe God's at work in this thing? How can you say God is at work when this is happening? How many of you have heard that? How can you say God is at work when this person died? How can you say God is at work when this terrible thing happened? And I I understand and I sympathize with that. But my mind always goes 
to the truth that God sometimes has a different timeline for working out his purposes than we do. Do you realize that the very reason God wrote the book of Revelation was not to give us a theology lesson on when God would set things in order? You know who he wrote the book of Revelation to? He wrote to seven churches. And half of them were persecuted in a way that you and I have never known. Evil was prevailing. Sin was winning. God's people were oppressed and silenced. But God took, what, 22 chapters? Just to write the message. There will come a day when sin and evil will be silenced, when Satan will be bound, and when my purpose will prevail, and evil and sin will be no more, but God's people will be exalted, and God's people will reign with me, and I will wipe away all evil. I'll wipe away all pain, and I will prevail. My purpose will prevail. No matter what you see right now, Church of Smyrna, no matter how crushed you feel right now, there will come a day when I write those wrongs, when the people who oppressed you will be dealt with, and vengeance will be taken care of. Can I just encourage you, church? I don't know what pain you're facing. I don't know what sin and evil you're dealing with in your life, but can I just remind you that God's purpose will prevail in your life. He will wipe out sin. He will wipe out evil, and you can trust and put your faith in that. You may not see it right now, but there will come a day when your eyes shall see it. And no matter what doubts you mutter under your breath when life gets hard, there will come a day when God will have the final word. And your lips will utter praise to his name for how he was at work even in ways that you didn't see in the current circumstances of your life. So how can we trust that God loves us and has a purpose for us even when life seems to say that he doesn't? Well, two things. God saved you from the destruction you deserved. And God's eternal purpose for your life will prevail. That's the presentation of evidence. Really, Israel had nothing to say, did they, right? Who's going to respond to that? But every trial ends with a deliberation and a verdict. And the verdict isn't necessarily God's to make because the issue wasn't, God's love really isn't on trial in the sense that we get to decide whether or not he loves us, no. He loves us. But the decision that we have to make tonight is this. You have to decide if you will trust in God's love for you even when your circumstances tell you otherwise. That's your deliberation and your verdict. And there's two groups of people in here tonight. There are people in here tonight, I, I, I would imagine, that they're in this moment right now where it feels like God's love and his purpose for their life seems so unreal. It's almost like they read the Bible and it's tone deaf. He's like, okay, God's promises, God's love, yeah, right. And I would encourage people in that boat to understand this, that it doesn't matter what you think about God's love right now. The day will come where you will come to an understanding that God does love you and he has a purpose for your life. And here's your choice. You can choose to suffer through this life because you're bitter at God or you can choose to just trust in his word and let his name be praised from your lips now rather than waiting for God to settle it in eternity. 
Honestly, we work to our own destruction when we get bitter with God. It doesn't really accomplish anything. We don't prove a point with God. His point's already been proven. And, and, and I, I hope that maybe tonight, if, if your circumstances seem to scream so loudly, God isn't in your situation, God doesn't love you, God doesn't have a plan for you, that maybe tonight you would have been reminded, no, God does love me. He does have a plan for me. But there's a second group. There's a group of people that life is great. It's good. It's hard to doubt God's love when life is good. Right? That, that's where I'm at. I don't have any reason. I would be foolish to say, man, life is so terrible for me. But you know what, what God has spoken to me about is that I think the people who make it through trials with grace and with faith are the people that decided right here that they would trust in God's love for them and that they would never let the circumstances silence their trust and their faith in God's love so that when they do enter the fire and when they do enter the trials of life, they've already made up their mind. I'm going to trust in God's love for me. And therefore, it's those people who life throws out so, so many hard things at them. And guess what? Their worship, their praise, their service to God is never affected. Because their love for him has never changed. Can I encourage you tonight, whether you're in the fire or you know someday you'll be in the fire, that you would make this decision to place your faith and your trust in God's love and purpose and say, God, I don't care what happens in my life. God, I promise I will cling to you. God, give me the grace to always come back to these two pieces of evidence that you've saved me from a destruction I don't deserve. And you have an eternal purpose for my life that will prevail. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful.